0: If you were um, here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember we talked about what does it mean to have faith. And I explained that answers to prayer are not based on how much faith we've got measured on a scale, with perfect faith at one end and not enough faith at the other. And us always wondering, what's the pass mark to get our prayers answered? I said, it's not about straining and striving to have unshakable mental certainty up here that what we're praying for is definitely going to happen that we will get what we ask for if only we don't allow any doubts or think anything negative in case somehow we lose the answer because of it but you know God is not a prayer answering machine who just has to be programmed right with something called faith with us always left wondering whether we have or haven't got enough faith for a prayer to be answered. And for some of us, maybe being racked with guilt when we think that it was our lack of faith that allowed something bad to happen, that it was our fault. If only we'd had enough faith, then it wouldn't have happened. And these are all wrong ways of thinking because. God has not delegated answers to prayer to something called having faith. It's not about tapping into some cosmic law or cosmic system that God has supposedly put in place. It's not about having a positive confession or naming it and claiming it. Obviously the Bible has some wonderful promises and they're there to encourage us and to draw us closer to God. But not for us to treat them like magic spells to tell God what he must do in a particular situation. Because prayer is not transactional. Prayer is not a formula. Prayer is a relationship. Now I haven't got time to go through everything that we said the other week, but please do watch the video or listen to the podcast if you missed it, because that is the starting point for what I want to go on to talk about this morning, which is, if that isn't what praying in faith is all about, then what is it all about? And that's because although faith is not a formula, that doesn't mean that it has no framework. The alternative to wrong ways of thinking about it is not no way of thinking about it, it's a right way of thinking about it. So let's start with something that's actually rather basic. And that is the question, does God intervene in this world at all? Because if we're wondering that in the first place, it's going to undermine our ability to pray confidently and expectantly to say the least. Now, for most of human history, and especially in the Jewish and Christian traditions, the idea that there is a supernatural God who lives and moves in a supernatural realm that is as real as the world that we live in, a God who invites us to ask him to become involved in our lives and situations, that idea was taken for granted. But in the last couple of hundred years or so, especially in the West, since the beginning of what we call the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason, Western society has imbibed the idea that all of that is just primitive superstition. And Christians have allowed that secular way of thinking to affect their own ways of thinking. They've kind of retrofitted reasons to explain away why they don't think God does things in this world anymore. They invented an idea called cessationism, which basically says, yes, the Holy Spirit did move in those ways in times past, but spiritual gifts, healing, prophecy, signs and wonders, they were all just to kind of kick things off to get the church started like a special offer when you're launching a new product. But they ended when the Bible was completed. Now, personally, I think that that is, technical term, completely bonkers. The Trinity did not suddenly become God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit didn't just hang up his boots and go into retirement. There's nothing that we can see in the Bible that would even remotely suggest such a thing. If that was the plan, you would think that God might have mentioned it. To say something like that is massively overstating the role of the Bible, and it's massively understating the role of the Holy Spirit. They don't compete with each other, they complement each other, word and spirit, together. So to say that spiritual gifts are no more is to be saying that answer prayer is no more to say that supernatural things don't happen or can't happen is to say that a supernatural god has moved out of the business of supernatural things that he's stopped being involved in human lives except as some kind of observer a bit like the united nations in a war zone just there to watch what's happening but not to get involved and actually do anything If God had decided to no longer be active in this world, it would basically mean that everything the Bible has to say about prayer is now a waste of space. You might as well just get rid of all of those bits and save some paper. Praying would be a powerless and pointless ritual. So that basically is daft. But if we do believe that God is still involved and still active in our world, and that he invites us to pray, and that prayer changes things, we still need to have a framework for understanding how that all happens. And whether, and when, and why, God will or won't respond to our prayers in the way that we've asked him to. So there's a a big question, isn't it? Now if anyone says, well, we've got that all figured out, Um, can I suggest, don't believe them. Don't waste your money on books and conferences that are offering three easy steps to answer prayer. Or more hyped up ideas like five keys to unlocking the heavenly realms, or something like that. But just because we can't say everything about these questions doesn't mean we can't say anything. So we're gonna try and look at that today. And I want to start by saying, please don't think of the ideas that I'm going to be sharing this morning as formulas for success, or even formulae for success, if you're more technically minded. Getting them right doesn't mean that we'll get what we're praying for any more than getting them wrong means that we'll miss out on what we're praying for, because that's not how God works. Bible verses aren't like magic spells or maths equations. They're not formulas to achieve a transaction. They are features that frame a relationship. Because prayer is relational, not transactional. So I just want to share some things with you that I think are healthy features of a great prayer relationship a foundation for us to be able to pray well and to know that God hears us and to be praying confidently and expectantly. So feature number one is to be people who really, really, really know who God is and what he's like. Understanding the nature and the character of the God to whom we are praying. Seeing him right and relating to him right I didn't have enough space on the slide here for three realis, but it is so important that it deserves three reallys. It's about having the right paradigm, the right framework and the right metaphor in our minds to describe and define what our God is like and what he thinks of us and how he feels about us. This is far and away the most important thing in our relationship with God, and hence in our prayer life as well. Because if we don't get that right, then we'll never get the rest of our Christian life right. Now there are many ways that the Bible describes God using many names and titles. Uh, Many of them feature in our worship songs, don't they? But how do you mostly conceive him and think of him because that will affect your prayer life and your faith for example do you perhaps mostly think of him in impersonal terms as a force or a power do you think of him as a scary judge uh, like a supreme court judge of the kind that boris johnson is having nightmares about right now Is he someone with whom you feel you have to watch your step because you're always in danger of his wrath and his judgment breaking out against you at any moment? Maybe you're someone who quietly suspects that God is angry with you most of the time. Maybe you worry that the reason that things go wrong in your life is because he's angry and that it's judging you. Maybe you're so conscious of all of the weaknesses and the failings in your life that, to be honest, you don't really ever expect your prayers to be answered because all you can think of is all of the reasons that He's going to find fault with you when you ask Him. You see God as a bit like Father Christmas, whose first question when you're hoping for a present is Have you been good this year? Or maybe you've got the opposite problem. Maybe you've really grasped this idea of grace and God's unconditional mercy and acceptance and that he loves you just as you are, which is of course all good and all very true. But you've turned it into a kind of cheap grace. You've allowed it to dull your sense of sin in your life. You've taken grace as a license that God will be okay with everything and anything that you do. You've gone OTT in the other direction and you've started thinking of God as like your favorite granddad or grandma who's so besotted with you that in their eyes you can do no wrong. So you're not sensitive to the ways in which your life isn't matching up to the person who God would have you be and the ways in which that might be hindering your relationship with him. In short, you've been desensitized to unrighteousness. You've forgotten James five eighteen: The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of someone who is right with God, stays right with God, is right with people, stays right with people, and just tries to do the right thing so it's vitally important that we have a right understanding of who God is the nature and character of the God we're praying to how we understand him how we visualize him and how we relate to him and far and away to my mind the best way to think of the God to whom we're addressing our prayers is as a loving heavenly father not as a power or a force not as a prayer answerer, but a heavenly father. And I think that is God's preferred choice of metaphor, the picture that he most wants us to think of as defining our relationship with him. It's no surprise that when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray, the way that he frames that prayer relationship, the way that he kicks it off is this. When you pray, say, father not just his father but our father luke eleven two, 2 the lord's prayer it's known as the our father in john's gospel john 1 12 it says to all who received him he gave the right to become children of god matthew 7 11, if you know how to give good gifts to your children How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Father is the word and the idea that Jesus used more than any other to frame how we should think about our relationship with him. In the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the main character is the Father. It's actually him, really, that that parable is all about. The parable is about someone who's as bad a son as any father could ever have. But more than that, it's about someone who's the most wonderful father that anyone could ever have. He's the very best father, even to the very worst son. And that is a picture that speaks to us of our relationship with God. We are the worst possible sons, but he is the very best possible heavenly father. So when we're thinking of what God is like, the God that we're praying to, that is how we should think of him because that's how Jesus portrays him to us. So can I suggest you use the parable of the prodigal son as your lens for understanding what God is like. Feature number 2 is being people who are people of faith. Not faith defined the way I was trying to get us away from last time, but where faith is trust in God and faithfulness to God, which is actually the original meaning behind the biblical word, not mental certainty. Trust and faithfulness are the fruit of our relationship with our Heavenly Father They are not a way of getting answers to prayer out of our Heavenly Father. Because our trust is not trust in the outcome. And it's not trust that we'll get the right answer. It's trust in the person. It's trust in the one we're praying to. Because prayer is relational, not transactional. If we're people who love God, we will be people who trust God. If we're people who trust God, we will be people who are faithful to God. If we are trusting and faithful people, if that is the hallmark of our walk with him, then we will be, by definition, people of faith. So trust and faithfulness need to be the water that we are swimming in, like water is to fish 2 Corinthians 5:7 says we live by faith and not by sight. In other words, we take our points of reference in life from trusting in a God we can't see and being faithful to a God we can't see, rather than taking our points of reference in life from what we see happening around us. If we can't see answers to prayer, if what we do see is problematic, And even at times, if it's a disaster, people of faith still trust him. We're still faithful to him because it's relational, not transactional. Or if you prefer a breathing metaphor rather than a swimming metaphor, trust and faithfulness are kind of like the air that we breathe. So we surround ourselves in an atmosphere of trust and faithfulness, breathing it in and breathing it out as the oxygen of our life. Feature number three for us to have confidence and expectancy in our praying is whether we understand the kingdom. We need to know that God is in the business of the kingdom and that business is bringing the future into the present. Because that is actually what is happening when we pray for people in ministry time and our prayers are answered. Now we tend to think of us in the present as on a journey to the future. That the future is static and stationary some point down the road and we are the ones moving in time towards it. But we're not so much going towards the future kingdom as the future kingdom is on its way towards us. What do I mean by the future? What does the future look like? Well, it's summed up in Revelation 21, very nicely summed up, that God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things which is the way that we experience life right now in the present, the old order of things will have passed away. This is what the future is going to look like. It's painting a picture here of the new heaven and new earth that we call heaven for short. It's headlining the key features of the way life is one day going to be. So when we are praying for the kingdom to come, these are the things that we are praying for in people's lives. We're praying for the presence of God to come. We're saying, come, Holy Spirit. We're praying more of your presence, more of this new order of things. We're saying, Lord, would you bring these features of the future kingdom into our present experience? And God is calling all of us to be people of the kingdom who will pray more of the future into the present. More of these features of Revelation 21. And this, of course, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. I don't know if you've ever realised that. It's about praying the future into the present. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So, when we're praying for someone in ministry time, uh, what that translates to is, Lord, would you bring some of the first fruits of that future kingdom into this person's life right now, we pray, in Jesus' name? Bring the features of the future into our present. Drive out those features of the old order of things, the things that bring tears, and death, and mourning, and crying, and pain. And give us a foretaste of the future kingdom. Now, the future invaded the present in the person of Jesus. The way that it will one day fully be and completely be on earth as it is in heaven, that began with Jesus' coming and Jesus' ministry. But it didn't stop there. God didn't just hit the pause button when Jesus ascended to heaven, with things all going back the way they were before. We are called to do the stuff that Jesus did by the same power of the same Holy Spirit that he did the stuff he did. You know, we shouldn't really call Jesus miracles, miracles, although obviously they are in that sense. But really we should call them signs and wonders because the the basic point of the miracles wasn't just to prove that he was god the miracles were signposts to that future signposts pointing to the kingdom having broken in to human life and human experience the kingdom having arrived matthew 10:8 jesus said heal the sick raise the dead cure those with leprosy and cast out demons in other words church don't just sit there and let the old order of things dominate people's lives I've come and I'm here says Jesus by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so you go on the attack as John Wimber famously said do the stuff more important than that however in John 14 12 Jesus said very truly I tell you whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And because Jesus went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit in his place, collectively, we can do greater things because, of course, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. So feature number three is that we can have confidence and expectancy in our praying because of our understanding of the kingdom that God is in the business of bringing the future into the present through us. Which leads us neatly on to, and will make some sense of, the final feature, number four. We are invited to participate in a relationship in which God moves, a relationship in which God does things. It's actually an invitation to us to join the family business. We're invited to partner with him and to see things happen. In John 15, 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. So folks, we do know the business that God is in. Everything about this family business that Jesus learned, he's shared with us so that we can join him in it. The family business is the business of the future and bringing the first fruits of that future into people's present while we wait patiently for the day in which it comes in all its fullness. And then here's where some of the verses that we may be familiar with should begin to make a bit more sense when we see them not as verses to be claimed or promises that God will always do whatever a verse appears to be saying in every instance or every time that we remind him of it. Instead, those verses are there to encourage us to be expectant people who will pray expectantly. They're telling us about the kind of God that he is, the kind of things that he does, and the kind of things that we can pray for and see happen. Not always, in terms of whether it happens, because we are living in a now that has features of the already about it, but it also has features of the not yet about it. But always, in terms of what is possible. And this is what is possible. Ask anything in my name, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Because he's a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Never stop praying. Because with God, all things are possible. All these are features of an expectant relationship that's birthed in, B-I-R-T-H, and birthed in, B-E-R-T-H, an assurance in our hearts of who God is and what he's like. A relationship in which we trust in who God is and what he's like. A relationship in which a defining characteristic is faithfulness to what we believe, whatever we see happening around us. Because we are people who live by faith and not by sight. Not people who deny the reality of what's happening and say we're healed, we're healed when patently we're not but trusting in Jesus irrespective of what we're seeing around us. Believing in a God and in a kingdom which is full of possibilities. A God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, in this is the Amplified Version, such is the confidence and steadfast reliance and absolute trust that we have through Christ toward God. So let's finish by having one last quick look at those four features of a healthy prayer relationship. Four features that I think should encourage us to be able to pray confidently and expectantly with our confidence and expectation in the one to whom we're praying. Four features that are relational, not transactional. God is encouraging us to be people who really, really, really know who God is and what he's like, who visualize him as a loving heavenly father. People who are people of faith, where faith is trust in God, and faithfulness to God who walk by faith and not by sight who know that God is in the business of bringing the future into the present as first fruits of that future harvest in the now as well as the not yet and finally people who are willing to accept his invitation to join the family business